Hey everyone, and welcome to Lighter Impact, the podcast that explores the intersection of social impact, somatics, and spirituality. Whether you're an entrepreneur, activist, or simply someone looking to make a difference, this podcast will provide you with insights and tools needed to make an impact in the world and feel lighter doing it. So sit back, relax, and let's see where this journey takes us. Welcome to episode 19 of Lighter Impact. In the past two episodes, I had been sharing about my own personal reflections as it relates to the war on Gaza, the atrocities, the genocide that we're witnessing. I have been struggling, clients have been struggling, loved ones are struggling, comrades are struggling, as we make sense of this world that we live in, where it feels like some people's lives matter more than others. Someone who was born and raised in the U.S., I mean, I too was under the illusion that this was a topic for history books that as a society, we were collectively past this. And then in 2016, 2020, with the Black Lives Matters movement, we were reminded that, nope, it's still very much present. And again, now in 2023, with the genocide in Gaza, and not just the military attack on Gaza, but the gaslighting of people around the world, the bias in the media from people around the world, we are also reminded that colonization is very much still embedded in the moral compass of many people around the world. This idea that some lives matter more than others. For the foreseeable future, I will continue to explore this topic and record episodes related to Palestine, to Gaza, to our interconnectedness. And I will do so from who I am as a person. As a Palestinian American, as a life coach, as a healer, as the founder of an organization called Build Palestine that aims to empower grassroots problem solving, as a mom to my beautiful three-year-old, as a human today in the 21st century. I will be exploring this topic with a variety of guests. Personally, I love listening to podcasts, but haven't been listening to them as much in the past three weeks because there is such a cognitive dissonance between what's happening in the world today and the topics that people are talking about on podcasts, at least in the self-improvement world, right? And if you dig beneath the surface, there is 
you can feel how the current time has influenced the topics. But I want to create a space that's more directly addressing what's happening in Palestine. Because like I said in my earlier episode, I do think we're living history. This is a very critical time just to be a human being in this world. Okay, so that's enough of an introduction. Um, Now I'd like to introduce my guest for today, the first guest that I'm interviewing in this series. I had the honor of being in conversation with Nora Lester Murad. I reached out to her because over the past few weeks, I myself am grappling with a lot of questions of how do we empower our community for liberation. And this was a conversation where I got to bring a lot of my own personal questions around liberatory giving. How do we act in solidarity with the people in Gaza? And how does that relate to the larger conversation we're having about the role of nonprofits in the world today? So a little bit about Nora Lester Murad. She is an activist, writer, and educator. Her young adult novel, Ida in the Middle, from Crocodile Books, won the 2023 Arab American Book Award and the Skipping Stones Honor Award. And she currently organizes with teachers to support the teaching of Palestine in schools. I Found Myself in Palestine, Stories of Love and Renewal from Around the World, was published in 2020, and Rest in My Shade, a poem about roots, was published in 2018, both by Interlink. While living in Palestine, Nora co-founded Dahlia Associations, Palestine's Community Foundation, and Aid Watch Palestine, a community-driven aid accountability initiative in Gaza. She has consulted widely with grassroots national, international, multilateral, and global actors on issues such as strategy, change processes, anti-racism, team building, participatory research, and communications. From a Jewish family, Nora is the mother of three brilliant Palestinian-American daughters and lives with her husband in Massachusetts on the traditional homelands of the Eastern Woodland Indigenous peoples. Most importantly, Nora is someone who I personally look to as a role model, someone who is figuring out what it means to live according to your values, dedicate yourself to liberation for all from this intersectional lens, and willing to ask difficult questions about what it'll take for us to get there together. Okay, so here is my conversation with Nora Lester Murad. Nora, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode, uh, especially during these really difficult times. Well, thank you so much for having me and for making room for this important topic. I'd like to start off with the question I ask all guests, bearing in mind that it is October 24th, 2023. We're on day 17 of bombing in Gaza. In that context, I want to ask, how has your understanding of making an impact in the world changed over time? Well, I think I've long believed, and I think I still believe, that times of crisis are the best time to intervene and make narrative change. 
and also the worst time to intervene and make narrative change. And I think that's true for philanthropy and for all kinds of other things as well. People become interested in Palestine. Palestine moves to the top of the agenda of news reporters, of schools, of workplaces, of neighbors um, in a way that, that wasn't true three or four weeks ago, and it won't be true three or four weeks from now. So that puts a lot of pressure on us who care a lot about moving things forward towards peace with justice to take full advantage. And the irony of that is how do you do your best and most impactful work when you are completely sleep deprived, uh, completely overwhelmed emotionally and practically people that you know and love are being killed or might be killed, not only in Palestine, but the escalation of racism where you and I here are here in the United States and that what that means for the uh, safety of, of children and families. So capacity decreases dramatically while the urgency increases dramatically. It becomes like a, a, a time of hyper stress, I think. So I don't know how that's changed over time, except to say that um, I've been connected with Palestine for 40 years. So I've been through many of these escalations in what is, you know, a 100 year long uh, crisis. And, and, uh, and, and this is definitely the worst, I feel that it's ever been on the narrative front, as well as uh, in terms of, of the actual existential uh, 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 survival of, of Palestinians, uh, especially, but not only in Gaza. Mm. So how has it changed over time? Is it just gets more and more intense and scarier, also more urgent and not sure what more to say. I'd love love to say, oh, here are the five things I've learned, but I'm not sure I can even articulate them what they would be right now. Maybe you can help me well, find maybe, them. Maybe, let me ask the question a little bit differently, which is like in this moment, what does it feel like it means to make an impact? Hmm. Hmm. What it means to make an impact. Well, the amount of misinformation and wrong framing all around us at all times means that any kind of intervention where we can call to the attention of somebody in the media or even an influencer in a smaller circle, we can get them to see something they didn't see before. I think that is a way to make, make an impact. What I don't know though is how that fits into the larger task of kind of holding back the tidal wave, um, not only of misinformation, of but of the bad policies that are driven by that misinformation, like, you know, uh, the, the the policy that that the president of the United States has taken to to not call for a ceasefire. Um, it's just I'm just astounded by anyone who could say the words aloud it's not the right time for a ceasefire. Like, what does that even mean? When is it not the right time for a ceasefire? It's just astounding. I don't know what it means to make an impact. 
to maybe not get erased and to just keep speaking and to act with integrity and, and, and authenticity to try to live the principles that we speak about of, of, of calling out destruction and uplifting constructive people and actions. Um, but it's painful. It's, it's painful. It's hard. And it's, I think for a lot of people in the social impact space, I'm just speaking in the social impact space in particular, because that's really what this podcast is focused towards is people in the social impact space. There is this debunking of the entire field that many of us have dedicated our lives to. This idea of like, if we mobilize, if we strategize, we can make an impact. And maybe it's holding the two truths. Maybe it's holding the truth that, yes, that's possible. That's, that is the, the way to do it. Like that is necessary. Along with the other truths, which is one that I'm grappling with a lot these days, which is what can I actually do like as one person? You know, I think there's a lot we one person can do. I just don't, I can't quantify or, or even like calculate the impact, but there's a lot one person can do. I mean, one person can reach out to all their uh, Arab, Muslim, Palestinian, and otherwise affected, you know, Israeli and Jewish friends and colleagues and uplift humanity. That one can do that and 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 it's it's really surprising how big of an impact that can have when folks are being um, so um, consistently uh, put down and and dehumanized. Is that to have their humanity recognized is really a major thing, and any one person can do that. Um, and one person can also uh, call out uh, dehumanization by others or by systems whenever it may happen. In um, in, in schools and workplaces where when there is framing that uh, that uh, devalues uh, Palestinian Arab or Muslim life to speak out against that one person can do that and it's even better when we do it in groups but speaking out against that dehumanization uh, is is another thing one person can do and then um, one person can uh, can seek to take advantage of these narrative opportunities by writing to the media or calling out the media um, if there's a, a bad framing or misinformation all of these things matter and of course you know what we're going to talk about today um giving matters too it does matter yeah yeah and in the midst of the crisis the voice matters more like right now as we are witnessing the bombing as the president of the united states is saying it's not the time for a ceasefire this is the time where our voices matter most. No, absolutely. I mean, the people in Gaza are explicitly saying, we don't want to die with a full stomach. Stop trying to send us food. Stop the bombs. You know, it's just really clear that this is not the moment for, for advocating around increasing the number of humanitarian trucks from 20 to 30 or right. even to 50 when Gaza needed upwards of 500 trucks per day prior to this escalation, just in the quote, normal crisis, unquote, 
uh, upwards of 500 trucks a day, if I have my numbers correct. Now they're celebrating the entry of 20 trucks of humanitarian aid, none of which are bringing fuel, by the way, which is needed to distribute that aid in the first place. So it's easy to be, um, to take a, a certain, um, we have to adjust, I guess that's what you're saying. We have to adjust our priorities to the moment. Um, something that may have been the most important a month ago it's not the most important right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a really good way of putting it. And yet, you know, I, it, I know it's a delicate topic, this question of giving, especially in this moment when the fact of the matter is there is an opportunity, like people are being mobilized and they want to give. At the same time, people in Gaza are saying, we don't want to die with a full stomach. Like, it's, it's like, we're not asking you to donate to us. We're telling you to stop killing us. Yes. And this is where I want to bring in the concept of liberatory giving that you've written very eloquently on. Can you just explain the, the basics of liberatory giving, mutual aid, the shift of how some of us think of philanthropy, like, let me go and donate to this organization, to more of an interconnected approach? I will try. I mean, starting from the phone calls and emails I get and I'm getting today as I did in 2021 and I did in 2014, um, when there's a crisis, people feel guilty and they say, where can I give? And hopefully some of them realize that that desire impetus to give is coming from a place of, of guilt and powerlessness. Uh, they don't know what else to do. And so they're going to give. Uh, I wouldn't say don't give. I would say don't give and then alleviate your guilt. Give and, you know, take political action. But even the way that we give and understanding the systems that are available for giving, uh, understanding the impact that has ultimately on Palestinian life and liberation is really important. And I don't think people should jump over that process. You know, if it's like, okay, I've got five minutes, I feel guilty about the news, let me write a check for $25, then yeah, don't. Like, really, don't. Because you are literally only helping yourself. Um, when you do that without understanding what your motivation is, and without understanding the systems through which you're giving and how your $25 is ultimately going to be used, you could potentially actually do harm. Yeah. So, so let's talk about it. <laughs> let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And, and I think it, it starts with bringing the awareness to it, right? Like bringing the awareness with compassion for how we were conditioned in our society, in this world, to deal with the discomfort and the guilt of feeling powerless and knowing that there's injustice happening while we're very comfortable in our homes drinking a latte like that that's uncomfortable but like that discomfort in the body has its wisdom for action and yeah maybe deceiving it to thinking that writing the check is enough is doing more harm than good in this moment mm-hmm mm -hmm. Yeah, there's the, the actual harm that is caused by deceiving your body and yourself and your mind. There's that harm that's, you know, I'm, I'm putting on myself. 
Um, and then there's the the harm on on the Palestinian people who are supposedly the intended quote unquote beneficiary. I say quote unquote beneficiary because you and I know that that's a term that's used in the development social impact space in a way that's quite often dehumanizing um, and and actually inaccurate. Um, but but um, if if someone sits down to write a twenty five dollar check uh, intending for it to benefit Palestinians, they should hopefully understand the the complexity of it having the impact that they intend. So if I should step back a little bit and say that philanthropy, the giving by individuals or or small scale foundations, the philanthropic space still takes place within the aid system, the hegemony of the aid system in a place like Palestine, but not only Palestine. Um, basically, whenever uh, places or peoples uh, have become dependent on aid, the aid context becomes the frame or the container within which other non-aid types of interventions also take place, if you know what I mean. I don't know if I'm being clear enough, but so a place like Palestine, where uh, the aid system runs alongside of the Israeli occupation, both legal, uh, regulatory, and bureaucratic constraints are in place that not only affect aid, but also affect, affect philanthropy. So for example, over the years, and especially since uh, since 9-11, the post 9-11, quote, counterterrorism uh, 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 policies led by the United States government, but fully embraced by Europe and other Western allies, have made it really, really difficult for $25 to arrive in Gaza. Really, really, really difficult. So a person that does want to write a check to Gaza uh, can't write a check to Gaza, can't send a $25 PayPal to a friend in Gaza, um, and will have a lot of difficulty even sending a wire transfer to a Gazan organization like uh, the Mizan Center for Human Rights or Gaza Community Mental Health or any number of the really excellent local nonprofit organizations that exist. Because what you have to do is you have to go to your bank and do a wire transfer, which costs $35 or $40, to send your $25 to, let's say, Gaza Community Mental Health. And you have to obviously have all their bank information, and then it will probably be held up by bankers who are implementing uh, U.S. foreign policy restrictions to be investigated. It, if it's a large enough contribution, not $25, but if it's a large enough contribution, you know, you as the sender may be uh, investigated or highlighted, red flagged in some way. And it doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong or that you'll get in trouble, but you may trigger surveillance upon yourself by making that contribution. And then on the receiving end, uh, they may or may not ultimately receive it, and they may or may not ultimately end up paying a lot of money to receive it, you know, far more perhaps than you're even sending. Most people don't go through that. Most people, if they're if they're really motivated in, consciously or unconsciously by, by guilt, 
you know, they're going to get online, they're going to find someone who can take a credit card, who can give them a US tax deduction, or, you know, the equivalent in, in Canada or in the UK, or at least just have the easy, um, easy access to to a one or two click type of a contribution. Those organizations are not local organizations. They're not local Palestinian organizations. They're international organizations that either implement their programs in Palestine or who work through local organizations to implement local activities in Palestine. And um, both of them have consequences, negative consequences, ultimately on Palestinian independence, uh, sustainability, and, uh, and, and liberation. So at this current time, at this moment, we're all feeling this hug, this pull to do something. And like we started off saying, voice is so important. The voice is number one. We also need to give because liberation movements need communal support. It needs resources to be funded. And this is where I want to explore more what else could that look like other than me going to a website and donating and giving it to a nonprofit that then has its monitoring and its policies and everything to implement um, programs? What else could that look like? And specifically here, starting to get at the idea of al-auna, of like more indigenous, traditional ways of funding communities and liberation, funding liberation. Right, right, right. Well, the easiest and most obvious thing is for people to give that $25 to the Palestinian organizations that are working on liberation, which is a long-term struggle. So, okay, my $25 isn't going to go to, you know, food and water for a family in Gaza right now, but it will go, let's say, to Visualizing Palestine or to Al-Shabake or to... Uh, you know, the U.S. campaign for Palestinian human rights, one of the organizations that are working on influencing the the political solution towards justice. So, and th that can be easy. That can be uh, a credit card contribution. But still, if you want to make a difference, you don't make a one-time contribution. You make an ongoing contribution. Maybe you don't plop down $100 now. You give $5 a month. Why is $5 a month better than $100 right now? Don't they need it right now? Yes, of course they do. But what organizations really need is to have um, reliable, consistent funding um, and reliable and consistent political support. So anything we do one time will have much, much less impact than what we do over time in a very committed way. The other benefit that has, which you're getting at right now with the idea of solidarity is is that it it uh, involves us, it connects us, it puts us in relationship with movement organizations in a longer term way. So I, by giving my $5 a month to, or $10 a month to Visualizing Palestine um, or Mondo Weiss or, or any number of, of amazing organizations, uh, I become invested. I become invested in their success. I, became in, I become interested in the work they're doing, in promoting the work they're doing, because I've got um, skin in the game, uh, I'm invested in them. So I think that's that creates that kind of more sustainable um, fabric that upholds a community that can last for the longer term. So even though it doesn't quite look like Launa yet, 
um, there are steps in the right direction we can take. One of them is to give to local organizations and do the hard work of getting it to them. Another work one is to give to organizations that are working on liberation and movement work and making those uh, sustainable ongoing commitments, even when they're easy. Now, if you want to go beyond that, which of course we should go beyond that, even people who don't have money to spare, either they literally don't have money or they don't feel they have money. You know, insecurity can can play a number on our ability to perceive ourselves as givers. Uh, and then people don't have money saying, oh, I'm not a giver, I'm a receiver. But But those categories are false categories. Every single one of us is a giver and every single one of us is a receiver. And so by thinking of ourselves as givers, we, we start to look at our resources differently. Okay, maybe I don't have $5 a month, but maybe I have an hour a month. Maybe I don't have $5 or an hour a month, but I know somebody I could introduce you to who could help you with something. Maybe I don't know anyone I could introduce you to. I don't have contacts to leverage in that way, but I have a network of people that I can spread your information to. I can be a person who takes your news newsletter and forwards it on to, to 20 people or who can speak up about what's going on at a neighborhood meeting, at a school committee meeting, at a, a, a church or, or mosque or temple event, for example. There are so many ways to be part of the solution. And it starts with realizing that we have a lot to give and that it's not, it is, it can be money and it's not always money. Nope. And it, it doesn't, it can't always be money too. Like, I don't think it's healthy. Oh, I love that. Be money. Right. Forgiving, not because someone needs it, because it's the natural flow of things. Like, you know, energetically, <clears throat> you can't always give. You have to give, you have to receive. There's a balance of everything in the world. And from the healing perspective, and what I, when I work with my clients, it's always like you're using your voice because your voice needs to be used for your own soul, for your own sake. Like, let's start there. And maybe that's enough impact as the starting point. So like, same thing with giving. I mean, this is this is in the Muslim tradition is you give for yourself. You don't give because the person needed it. So tapping into this idea of us all being interconnected. And instead of asking, what do I do for you? It really becomes like, what do I do for us? Like, how are we going to move through this together? And I, I always find it so fascinating how the healing world and like energy work is rooted in interconnectedness. Like the fact that we are all interconnected is now has now become a scientific fact. So as we're moving through this tough time, remembering that we're not just doing it for them, we're doing it for us. Well, I think that's a really good point. I don't often like bring in Jewish things because it's it's not my default, but um, I am Jewish and I was raised Jewish. And one of the most, you know, significant concepts that I do keep with me is the concept of mitzvah, uh, which is, uh, as I understand it, you know, the world and the universe gives you opportunities to do good. And whenever you see that opportunity, you say, oh, yay, I get that opportunity. That is for me. I get to do something good. And that's pretty similar to, to I think, what you're saying. And 
it, uh, it, it is healing, especially at a time right now where um, it's easy to feel powerless and like I don't matter to do whatever thing can be done um, to, to take advantage of the opportunities that the universe gives us to do good. That's what I call a win-win-win. Yeah, yeah. Nora, as we start to wrap up, I want to ask about your own personal approach to giving. How, because you are not just giving to the Palestinian cause, you are very intentional in seeing the world through this intersectional lens of all of our liberations being tied together. So I'm curious if you could share about your own personal approach to giving. I find capitalism so problematic and it's almost, not almost, it is, I feel, impossible to fully live according to my values within the capitalist system. So from the beginning, it's imperfect. And the next layer on that I mentioned earlier is like the way capitalism and um, especially here in the United States, it like breeds a feeling of insecurity because we we are are socialized to think that we we live as individuals um so i'm very unsafe unless i have a lot of saved resources i will be unsafe because i'm an individual and i'm supposed to take care of myself when in fact as you were saying there's no such thing as taking care of ourselves we're all interdependent and um in fact, if I have a lot of money and I'm all by myself, I'm going to be less safe than I would be if I had very little money, but I had lots of other people who who felt that collective sense of of, um, of obligation and well-being. This is something that for me as a U.S. white person living for so many years in a Palestinian family, so going from a very individualistic culture to a collectivist culture, it's it's been very powerful for me. Um, to grasp that I will never be homeless because I'm a member of the Palestinian family. It's not going to happen. And I will never be hungry unless every single person in my whole family is hungry. I will never be hungry because I'm a member of Palestinian family. And, and so both my capitalist reality and upbringing and my exposure to a Palestinian collectivist reality are present when I try to figure out how to how I want to give. The hardest, the biggest challenge for me is being in close relationships with people who are in need a lot and for whom uh, my uh, sharing my resources might mean the difference between being evicted or not being evicted from an apartment, you know, living with shelter or on the streets. Um, I know theoretically and practically I can't, support people i can't just like send people 300 dollars a month you know all over the world although people ask me all the time for money i can't do all of that um but i can do some of it so i just try to i just try to lean into all that messiness you know and if people ask me for something at a time when I can do it, then I do it. And if it's a time I can't do it, then I don't do it. And then I spend as much time as I can saying to myself, why are you waiting for people to ask you if you know they're in need? Can you make a longer term commitment? But these are individuals they are trying to stay in homes. Would the money be better spent 
you know, towards an organization that's working on addressing the political issues that's leading to this type of, of individual insecurity. You really, at the end of the day, got to do as much right as you can do. All I feel I can do is to be thoughtful and to be, um, and to, and to, to think and to realize, admit that I'm very imperfect in that um, and that I'm doing the best I can. Um, and sometimes I give money to individuals who are in bad situations. And sometimes I give to organizations that are having an emergency response. And sometimes, and most often, I will give to organizations that are doing the political and long-term work. And the reason why I do that is I think a lot of other people are doing the more charitable work. Mm. Um, and uh, and so I will, will more will more likely try to address uh, the root causes of the situation that's causing people to be in need, rather than try to send food or water or medicine to somebody who is in need. Boy, that was a long answer. I'm supposed to be a quote expert in this unquote. It's just all messed up. Yeah. You know, I would love to hear your philosophy about how you do that. I know you face these things and I don't know how often you get to talk about it in public forums, but I'd sure love to learn from you. Um, so I'll share with you the approach that we have in our family is we have a dedicated giving budget, which is 10% of our income. Um, so 10% goes towards giving and then that just becomes a bucket. There's no strategy behind it. And at first, I thought we needed one. And now I think I'm leaning more into the Muslim tradition of you give to the one who asks and the one who doesn't ask. So just trusting that whoever is brought into our life, whoever is brought into our inbox, like it's a percentage of that amount. And then, and then going back to the bigger picture of the question you originally framed about liberatory giving, I, I just want to close a loop on one thing. I started out talking about the aid system as kind of a framework within which philanthropy is also constrained in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of the biggest ways that it's constrained is by shifting the whole focus from liberation to development. So in Palestine, when people talk about we want to do income generation for women or we want to do youth empowerment or we want to do, you know, rooftop, um, rooftop um, permaculture gardens or we want to do solar panels for Bedouin communities, all these things which in, the, in and of themselves are good things to do. They're not bad things to do. They fall, however, into uh, an approach uh, that I would call a development approach and not into what I would call uh, a liberatory approach. And the way that we can get closer towards liberation is, is as we've discussed so far, to act in solidarity with people as they pursue their rights and, and needs and to act in solidarity and support them in that solidarity. Also, as we mentioned before, to speak out with our own governments, especially for those of us who live in the United States or, or in any Western country, to influence the political policies and the economic policies and the military policies that are creating the oppression in the first place. And then thirdly, just to add a layer of complexity to it, I think we we also have to think about 
who is deciding how this money gets used? We've been talking on a very micro level of you're going to write a check, so you're going to decide. I write a check, so I'm going to decide. But in the bigger scheme of things, the resources that Palestinians as, as a people have access to are resources over which they do not have any decision-making power. So even if we were talking about development, which I don't think we should be talking about, I think we should talk about liberation, but even if we're talking about development, how can you develop another people? Like, isn't it, isn't it built into the idea of development, the idea of self-determination? Yep. So Palestinians themselves should be deciding how that $25 is spent or the $100 or the $10,000. They should be deciding how it's spent according not only to their needs, but according to their priorities. And, and, and the way that we enable that self-determination in development is by giving up control. And the way we give up control is by realizing that this money doesn't belong to us in the first place. This is money that does not belong to us. It, or let me speak for myself. I don't wanna speak for anyone else. The money that I have, and I'm not a rich person, but the money I have is more than the money I've earned. Some of it came from my parents or it came from benefits I got from my parents. You know, they enabled me to go to college. College enabled me to get a higher paying job. Getting a hired paying job enabled me to buy a home. Buying the home enabled the home to appreciate, et cetera, et cetera. So the way that wealth uh, is accumulated and then becomes intergenerational wealth means that a certain amount of the resources that I am supposedly, quote, giving away and that I'm deciding about don't belong to me in the first place. So I need to find ways to actually transfer that wealth so that it doesn't belong to me and I don't decide how it is used because it's not mine. It's just not mine in the first place. And that's where the discussion about how do you do, you do liberatory giving interfaces with the conversation about reparations. Yes. You know, that some of the money, maybe a lot of the money that I have access to I came to because I'm the beneficiary of systems of harm. So not only does it not belong to me, but I have an obligation to repair that harm by transferring wealth and by participating in the, in the apology and the restoration of the right balance of relationships to literally stop causing harm. Because when we try to alleviate harm and continue to cause the harm in the same moment, you know, I think that's definitely not impact. <laughs> definitely not impact. impact. So there, we talk for an hour and we've determined this is not impact. It is not impact to try to alleviate problems that we continue to either cause or enable or excuse. Oh, so powerful and so true. I got to the root of it, Nora. I got to the root of it. A closing question for today. You have dedicated so much of your life to liberate to to the liberation of us all. You have these three beautiful daughters. That I do. 
what is the legacy you'd like to leave behind? Mm, I guess just I did the best I can. I just want to do the best I can. And um, now at age 59, I tell you, there's a lot of things I would do differently. I have learned a lot in the last couple of years. Um, ways in that I could have modeled for my daughters a more healthy and holistic way of being in the world. But I did the best I could. I really did. I did the best I could as a mother, as an activist, as a professional, as a human being, as a writer, and I'll keep doing the best I can. That's all I can do. Alrighty, friends, thank you for listening to another episode of Lighter Impact. If this resonated with you or you're curious about what it would look like to work with a social impact coach, please do reach out to me through my website, pauseimpact.org. Till next time, wishing you little moments of lightness and impact. Have a wonderful week.